So if you're a smartphone user like me, it's likely that you've received this question from one of your apps. Will you allow the widgets to use your location? And it's followed up by this advisory. The widgets might have to use your location for 15 minutes, quote, to stay up to date. Well, if you're like me, you've assumed that'll make the app work a little bit better, and you're right, it will. But that's not all. Hello again, I'm Aaron Alney, and this is How the World Works, a podcast from the UCLA Anderson School of Management. Allowing your location to be used does make the app better, but it does much more than that. It makes you a contributor to one or another massive database, and that turns out to be an instrument of enormous power. It can measure human behavior much more accurately than surveys or randomized trials. It can trace the impact of misinformation in a time of crisis. It can recommend new procedures for keeping nursing home patients safe from COVID-19. And get, get this, after the presidential election of 2016, it even discovered that Thanksgiving dinners around the country were getting shorter. Elisa Long and Keith Chen are professors at UCLA Anderson, and when they're not tending to their two-year-old daughter, they're working in what they call the brave new world of smartphone data. Elisa and Keith, welcome to our program. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Warren. Keith, let me start with you. Uh, you're the uh, one who discovered the story about the Thanksgiving dinners. How did you do it? Absolutely. Well, so as you said, one of the things that we became aware of was these new kind of massive databases of smartphone location data. And that is anonymized data on where a large share of adult Americans are at any given point in time, basically every 10 minutes. One of the things that first came to mind was that the 2016 election had been kind of the most contentious in at least recent American history. And it was followed shortly by an American holiday, Thanksgiving dinners, that traditionally bring kind of family members, oftentimes from across the political divide, to gather for what would have been a relatively uncomfortable meal. So what we decided to look at was whether or not we could measure whether or not Thanksgiving dinners across the country were actually measurably more uncomfortable in 2016 in the way that kind of a lot of anecdotal news reports had suggested. What we found actually exceeded our every expectation of what we would have been able to measure. How did you find it? Well, basically what we did was we took, you know, several million smartphones and we inferred where those smartphone users live. So basically that is to match an individual smartphone to the voting political precinct in which it lives. We're in an election year right now and intuitively everyone understands what that means. Because you live on this block, you know, you vote in that kind of elementary school, but somebody who lives two blocks away from you votes in, in a fire station. And it turns out, if we can figure out what polling precinct you would have voted in, that actually already basically tells you about 80-20, who, which presidential candidate in 2016 you would have been likely to vote for. What we then did was basically ask the really simple question, well, let's take a whole bunch of Thanksgiving dinners that we observe 
happened in 2016, shortly after this incredibly contentious election. And uh, let's look at Thanksgiving dinners, where the smartphones that got together for the Thanksgiving dinners were likely to have been very politically homogeneous. Like, uh, you know, most of the people attending this dinner voted for Trump, or most of the people at this dinner voted for Clinton. And let's compare the length of time those dinners last to the length of Thanksgiving dinners, which would have been more politically contentious, kind of involving likely Clinton and likely Trump voters. And basically what we found was twofold. One, cross-partisan dinners were on average 47 minutes shorter than dinners that likely involved no kind of political disagreements. Now, you could say there may be a whole bunch of different reasons for that. And so we did a number of kind of comparisons to make sure that that really seemed attributable to politics. We did three sets of comparisons. The first is to say that those cross-partisan dinners were 47 minutes shorter compared to dinners that got together where both the visiting family and the kind of host families lived within one mile of each other, but were still kind of reliably inferably either cross-partisan or non-partisan. So in other words, two families uh, who live within, say, half a mile of each other both drove 30 minutes to eat with families that also live within 30 minutes of each other. One of those dinners was reliably cross-partisan and one of those dinners uh, was much more kind of politically homogeneous. The second comparison we could make was to say, let's compare those dinners in 2016 between those two sibling pairs that voted differently in this election with that same Thanksgiving dinner from 2015 before the contentious election. And then the third comparison we can make is is it possible, if it's truly politics driving this decline in Thanksgiving dinners by 47 minutes, is it true that that effect is stronger in places, say, for example, swing states, where those two families were exposed to a lot of political advertising? In other words, where the political dialogue and the political environment may have been particularly heated. And that 47-minute effect that we talk about holds up to all three of those comparisons. So you're making a lot of assumptions, it seems to me. Uh, first of all, that people are, because they live in a particular precinct, they vote in a certain way. Uh, and also that they're having Thanksgiving dinner and then are not gathered for some other reason. How do you make sure those things are true? That's a great point, Warren. So very few Americans nowadays live anywhere near somebody who voted differently than them. And because of that, if you can figure out where someone lives, you have a pretty strong shot at guessing correctly who they voted for. Now, this kind of microgeography is actually pretty stunning, right? So in many places in the United States, like one large apartment building will go 80-20 Clinton, and the large apartment building right across the street from it will go 80-20 Trump. That's both clearly measurable and a growing feature of American political life. The second thing is, I've been calling these Thanksgiving dinners, you know, we can't tell whether or not that was you know, a large meal over turkey, or a bunch of people getting together to watch football. Think of that as, as a Thanksgiving gathering. So you depend a lot on gerrymandering to learn where the uh, uh, precincts are, but also uh, then you make assumptions about what they talked about at dinner and uh, uh, that they talked politics and that uh, they weren't getting together or not getting together for as long as they used to uh, for some other reason. So one thing to clarify, both for this study and for our other study on, on hurricanes, is that what we're referring to here, just to remind 
everybody are political precincts, not congressional districts. You know, congressional districts, we have 500 or so of them in the country, but with political precincts, there's about 160,000 precincts. So this is a much smaller geographic area. As Keith mentioned, it's really related to where you actually would be assigned to vote on election day. So it's not just gerrymandering, then it's a more precise measurement than that. So in a big city like New York, which precinct you vote in is basically which block you live on. Sure. Okay, well, now there's not much utility in that particular study, but in other studies that you've done, there is. And before we get into more detail about how you actually do this, let me ask Elisa about what you discovered with regard to keeping nursing home patients safer from COVID-19. Absolutely. So as many of us know, at the start of the COVID pandemic, residents of nursing homes or skilled nursing facilities were particularly vulnerable to both contracting the disease and ultimately succumbing to the disease. These individuals live in tight-knit areas where they're, they come into contact with other residents and with staff on a regular basis. And in addition to that, they tend to be elderly with pre-existing conditions, and so they're just at increased risk of developing this. So an incredibly vulnerable population. And one of the puzzles that came out early in the pandemic was this observation that several skilled nursing facilities, including one in Kirkland, Washington, had suffered an outbreak on the scale of more than 50 to 100 residents were ultimately infected, as well as many staff. This was kind of seen as the first broad outbreak that happened among nursing homes in the United States. This occurred in February and concerns that this was going to spread to other places. In mid-March, CMS, which is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, implemented a lockdown preventing any visitors from going into these nursing facilities starting March 13th. This was intended to help, of course, protect residents, but unfortunately it meant that many family members and loved ones could not visit these individuals, and the only people that could come and go from the facility were residents themselves if they were being transferred uh, or staff and contractors who were working in the facilities. So we take advantage of the fact that starting on March 13th, the only people who are appearing inside these facilities are likely residents and staff. And we use a similar smartphone data set to kind of map who's coming and going between nursing homes. So we examine more than about 50 million smartphones across the U.S. And there's about 15,000 skilled nursing facilities in the continental U.S. And from this, we're able to extract about 500,000 or half a million smartphones that enter at least one of these facilities beginning on March 13th. From there, we identify the phones that likely went to other facilities. So to give you a sense of this, about 5% of phones go to more than one facility. And from this, we begin to see a network emerge. The reason why we're, we're very interested in this, of course, is because after the lockdown happened, really one of the only ways in which COVID could spread among nursing homes is through staff or contractors who are working across facilities. And so if we can identify the likely shared staff network that exists, this can help us actually identify policies 
to reduce the spread. If a particular uh, nursing home has an outbreak that we become aware of, we could very quickly implement something like a rapid ring testing where we look at all of the staff who work in that focal facility as well as all of the other facilities connected to it. And we prioritize limited testing resources to those facilities or additional PPE equipment, or perhaps we isolate the most vulnerable residents of those at-risk facilities. So there's tremendous policy implications from understanding what the staffing network looks like. So this then raises some interesting questions. First of all, you start out with this massive amount of data, 15 million phones. Then you zero that down to 500,000. And you get a smaller and smaller sample as you go to the point where you can talk then about a given nursing home because of what you can detect about the smartphone movements of uh, people who work there. And you can get from that uh, a potential uh, policy recommendation, which I gather would be, let's try to keep the people at the same nursing home and not have them moving around so much, which gets into some interesting specific policies, such as how do you do that? And do you have to pay them more to stay in one place? Because they're obviously moving around from one to the other because they need the money. So these are excellent points. And to give you a sense of this, 500,000 phones is still an enormous sample. Each nursing home is on average connected to about seven other nursing homes. So when I say the term connected, I mean there's a staff member that has set foot in both of these facilities over the study period that we're interested in. So in this particular study, we looked into these staff. We found that about two-thirds of nursing homes rely on staffing agencies. So on the employment side, what happens is Nursing homes are a very regulated industry. There's laws that have been passed that require minimum staff to resident ratios. So these are intended, of course, to ensure high quality of care and make sure that residents are getting sufficient attention. For example, here in California, every nursing home resident has to have direct contact with a staff member for at least three and a half hours per day. So in non-pandemic times, that's an excellent idea. During a pandemic, we might want to relax some of these restrictions because what happens is nursing homes that perhaps have staff shortages, either due to individuals becoming sick themselves or staff just not able to make it to work that day, those facilities often then rely on temp staffing agencies to staff the nursing home that day. So those individuals are the ones that are typically working across multiple homes simultaneously. When you dive a little bit deeper into the data on this, many of these staff themselves are low-paid individuals who have to work two jobs really in order to make ends meet. Thanks to those widgets that we've all enabled, and without invading anybody's privacy, you've discovered data about employment patterns that could be really helpful during the COVID pandemic. And you've also discovered, again indirectly, how skepticism spread about the need to evacuate in advance of a hurricane, thanks in part to Rush Limbaugh. Tell us about that. It's been very well established for a long time that skepticism towards a number of issues such as climate change, vaccine hesitancy, and even most recently COVID risks have a partisan angle. Partisanship contributes to people's willingness to accept and kind of report an understanding of and a belief in many of these issues. 
what had been less well understood is how that skepticism actually translates into behavior. As Keith mentioned, initially wanted to focus on hurricanes, not from a partisan angle, but just more from a kind of a humanitarian logistics angle, which is these are huge storms that are becoming increasingly common and and more severe, as many scientists have documented. Can we use smartphone data to better understand how people respond? When do they leave? Where do they go? What's predictive of people choosing to stay at home? All of the prior research on this has largely relied along survey data. So following Hurricane Katrina in 2005, many researchers tried to understand why did some people stay at home and why did some people leave? And most of those studies relied on after the fact surveys. You know, they might ask 300 people, did you evacuate during Katrina? And do you remember what time or what day you left? Or if you didn't leave, what was your reason for staying? Or they ask questions about hypothetical storms. You know, if a category four storm was bearing down on your home, would you leave? Now, there's a number of challenges with interpreting those data and and extrapolating them, which is, you know, humans don't have perfect recall of exactly when they may have responded to something or they may not report truthfully. And of course, our sample sizes are very limited to kind of survey technology. We've actually been speaking with a Florida Department of Emergency Management, and they're the agency that's responsible for trying to understand when and where people go so that they can issue better alert systems. And they've indicated the last study they did on this was 12 years ago based on a relatively small survey. So this setting is really ripe for being able to use newer technologies like smartphones. More than 80% of Americans carry a smartphone. So by using smartphones and focusing on two weeks or so around the hurricane, we can identify, in the case of Florida, for the entire state, more than 1.3 million smartphone users. We can identify their likely home location based on where the phone spends its nights most often. So between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m., where is the phone most often located? So we can't precisely pinpoint the exact street address, but we can get close. So think of it as we can identify the block that you live on. Um, Again, initially, when we started this study, we wanted to look at predictors of evacuation. And what we very quickly realized was in 2017, there was this big kind of shock to the hurricane news world, which is many conservative media outlets, most notably led by Rush Limbaugh, really launched a series of attacks on government warning systems and climate change scientists. So in our paper, we discussed some of the quotations that Limbaugh is credited with, but basically he spent an entire episode of his show, which is the most listened to talk radio show in America. And he really called into question the severity of the approaching Hurricane Irma, as well as the response that local governments government officials and then the National Hurricane Center and other agencies were making. And this really set off kind of a whole series of events. We really dived into this to look at Google search trends, trends on Twitter and other places. Prior to this, there was kind of limited fringe of reporting of this kind of hurricane trutherism. But after this initial podcast that he gave in September of 2017, it really exploded. What we find in the data, which prior to these concerns, 
conservative media dismissals, there was absolutely no difference in evacuation rates. During Hurricane Matthew, which also hit Florida in 2016, during Hurricane Harvey, which hit about one month before Irma, largely in Texas and Mexico, this kind of partisan wedge came about just during Irma. The difference is really sizable. So we estimate using the smartphone data again, that about 34% of likely Trump voters evacuated for Irma versus 45% of likely Clinton voters. So we're talking about a 10 to 11 percentage point gap in evacuation rates for a storm that really hit the entire state of Florida. So that's really extraordinary. Uh, How long has this kind of data been available to people such as yourselves. Where do you find it? How do you access it? One thing that we should say is that this kind of data now, which is becoming more and more available to researchers, really represents a democratization of this kind of data. You know, ever since the iPhone came onto the scene, both Apple with the iOS operating system and Google with the Android operating system have known a lot about how every kind of American uh, searches, lives, when they're sleeping and where they are at any given moment. What's happening now is that within the last three or four years, really, more and more third-party apps, kind of the weather app you've downloaded to check the weather on your phone, that is the kind of navigation app, social media apps that are on your phone, those applications now are increasingly selling location data, which again, you've agreed to when you kind of check those boxes uh, on your phone up into these kind of aggregator sites. There's about seven large exchanges that operate where each of these apps basically anonymizes these data and then uploads them into these exchanges where they're combined with data from other apps, you know, for any particular smartphone user between all of the various apps that are on your phone, those data all together give these aggregator services a very good picture of where any particular smartphone is basically every 10 minutes going back about three or four years and going forward in real time. What you're saying is just absolutely astonishing to me. So one of them I got was from my Maps app and, you know, go ahead and upload the data. It doesn't occur to me that I may be contributing to something that will have political and policy influence and significance given the way it is used as you describe it, and it's getting circulated around, and it's going to be available to all kinds of other people. It's not just the maps that are going to be better. It's not going to just be easier for me to find my way from one place to another. That's right. And this is increasingly a privacy trade-off that Americans are being asked to make. We understand that the Maps app on your smartphone has been really, really useful for people in terms of navigation. It is also true that with all of that additional information, you know, these apps are both getting a lot better at what they do and also getting a lot better at understanding us as, as decision makers and people. And those data can be used by many different parties. But they don't tell you. In my case, I was told that the widgets are going to have to use the location for 15 minutes, quote, to stay up to date is a phrase that hardly describes what we've been talking about for the last uh, 20 minutes or a half hour. I mean, it is embedded often in the fine print when you download and install one of these apps on your phone. And there are ways to turn them you know, off entirely. The vast majority of people don't choose to do that. Um, so data aggregators are responding by saying, you know, we do obtain permission from users, but it it does seem like something, you know, that's very reminiscent of kind of the fine print in the pharmaceutical industry. 
and it's likely going to change. I mean, at the moment, these type of data allow us to examine really big, important questions that couldn't otherwise necessarily be examined. But absolutely, if this data gets in the wrong hands, I think it can be used for much more nefarious purposes. Well, of course, with the way we're talking about it, it's extraordinarily useful. But there obviously are a lot of things that, uh, as you say, uh, if the information gets into the wrong hands, could be used in a very sort of totalitarian manner or authoritarian manner. Is it possible from the information that is accumulated for any one individual to be singled out? Could you say that, uh, you know, here's the guy who, in fact, failed to evacuate from the house and therefore he and his family were left at home and the hurricane had struck them. To fully single somebody out would require a lot of triangulation in knowing that this phone was at this location at this time and to try to kind of pinpoint it. But conceivably with enough data and where you take your phone on any given day, that's relatively unique to you. It is potentially possible to do something like that. So one thing I'll say is if you as an individual, knowing all that you know about yourself, were to go into any one of these databases, it would be pretty easy for most people to identify themselves in these data, precisely because as Elisa says, you know you know where you work and you know when and where you dropped your kids off to go to school. And with just a few kind of pieces of information like that, you could very, very quickly figure out which of these databases you're in and which of these databases you're not in. You know, one of the things that I think we're increasingly going to have to grapple with it's kind of a question of how easily these data can be used for purposes that we wouldn't be comfortable with as individuals, right? So many of us throw away things into our garbage that if they were deeply examined and tabulated and very precisely triangulated would reveal things about ourselves that we don't particularly want everybody to know about. But because we just think, well, listen, like who would go to the trouble of like rooting through my garbage? we're perfectly comfortable with the level of anonymity that's provided to us just by the fact that it's just hard to imagine people would go through the trouble. Are you required to demonstrate what it is you want to do with the data? Or can you just by virtue of who you are, able to just go ahead and assess it whenever you want to? So Warren, in the case of people like Keith and I, because we're university academics, universities typically have something called IRB, which stands for the Institutional Review Board. They review things like clinical trials and biomedical interventions and things like that. But they also review a lot of social science research to ensure, as Keith mentioned, something like user anonymity. You know, for something like this, this is often deemed non-human subjects because we're not running, let's say, like a clinical trial. These types of studies will typically still go under some kind of IRB review. To your point, if you are a hedge fund and you have the resources to purchase these data directly from these companies, we're not privy to what those data sharing agreements look like. But, you know, in theory, I think it is possible to have some of these issues. And I think we have seen several news outlets like the New York Times, among others, that have gotten a hold of some of these data and sort of highlighted exactly what you're pointing out. Is this data being used or similar data being used in China and other countries that are much more sophisticated than we are already in how they deal with this kind of thing? Um, the kind of data that we're discussing here, generally speaking, would not be available to European researchers or European firms because of GDPR. On the flip side, um, you know, many governments in Asia, you know, most notably China, 
has moved very much in the opposite direction. Data privacy regulations in mainland China are much looser than they are in the United States. And similar types of analyses in China can be done with even much more invasive, non-anonymized data, data that's not just about where in an anonymized fashion your smartphone is at any given time, but which particular apps you're using, which people that particular smartphone has been in text contact with. The United States has really kind of tried to navigate a little bit of a middle ground with respect to this, but you know, this is going to be a really, really big question going forward is digital data privacy. Well, that's all the time we have, and this has been a fascinating look at what you guys call the brave new world of smartphone data. It really is a brave new world. You've shown us how this new information can be so powerful in so many ways and so valuable as long as it's used with appropriate caution, and thanks for showing us that as well. Elisa Long and Keith Chen, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much, Warren. Thank you, Warren. This has been How the World Works from UCLA Anderson. I'm Warren Almey.